Welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 70, and it's the third week of January 1901. In the west of South Africa, General Christian de Wet was gearing up for his attack on the Cape Colony. While that only took place in the last week of January, his brother Piet, whom he hated, was trying to convince the Boers to give up the fight. Remember, Piet was the brother who had begun to work with the British after fighting for a year and realised that there was just no way for a small group of farmers from Africa to beat the Grand British Empire. While his peers were convinced of the opposite, Piet was working to stop the war. As we'll hear, he was not alone. Even the wife of the great Boer general Louis Boerta became involved in attempts to stop the carnage. But the bitter enders, or bitter enders as they were called, were not to be appeased. Still, Piet, who had surrendered in August 1900, saw the beginning of the wholesale destruction of Boer farms under orders of Lord Kitchener, and he was determined to stop the wanton destruction. Entire districts had been raised by these sweeps of British troops moving through the landscape, setting fire to crops, killing animals, incarcerating Boer women and children and the elderly, and leaving no one on the farms to support the guerrillas. Piet the Vet had been living in Durban in self-imposed exile, which is ironic because to this day, Durban is called the last outpost of the British Empire. Many South African English speakers there still identify with Britain. Piet de Vet was infamous, but he had Lord Kitchener's ear. And in mid-January, he asked for permission to travel to Kronstadt in the Free State. He had an idea for a peace initiative. As Martin Bossenbroek, the Dutch historian, writes in his 2013 book, The Boer War, Piet de Wet had found out that his sister-in-law, Cornelia, was living in Johannesburg. Cornelia was General Christian de Wet's wife, so Piet decided to head to Johannesburg and pay Cornelia a visit. Perhaps he could reason with her, and she could reason with his brother, Christian, to abandon the struggle. Of course, their idea was naive in the extreme, Christian would have killed Piet on the spot had their paths crossed. It was Cain versus Abel in the worst possible way. When Piet de Wet arrived unannounced, Cornelia showed him to the door and then ordered the British soldier posted there to tell her brother-in-law to refrain from further visits in the future. We've already heard how other groups of Boers had tried to convince the bitter enders to stop fighting and also heard that some were executed by the commander generals for fraternizing with the enemy. These peace committees had mixed results, mostly bad. But Piet was undeterred and headed off to Kronstadt to do his bit in order to end this carnage. Kitchener's message, which these Boers relayed to their former comrades who were fighting in the felt, was simple. The British would never give up and would not negotiate. There was no way any foreign nation was going to intercede on behalf of the Boers in spite of the global diplomacy of the time, which saw the Germans as implacable enemies of the British. Piet de Wet thought a letter to his brother may help, so on the 11th of January he wrote to Christian. Instead of sending it, which of course would have been useless, Christian would have burnt it before reading it, Piet published it as an open letter in the Bloemfontein Post newspaper. He also published it as a pamphlet for good measure. It was called Brother to Brother, and the introduction, as Martin Bossenbroek describes, says it all. Dear Brother, I have heard you are angry and would kill me because you believe me to be guilty of treason. God will judge you righteously. Pete believed that the Boers would be impoverished by the war, that they would be left as the country's laboring class and then disappear as a nation. He didn't believe that the Transvaal burghers were supporting the Free State burghers 100% and that the Transvaal had escaped the ravages of war unlike the Free State. 
Christian was from the Free State and had already questioned the motives of the Transvaalers in public. The general would do it again in his book Three Years' War, so this was not a bad tactic by Piet. But he was wrong about the effect of the war on the two Boer republics. The Transvaal was being ravaged as he wrote, with Kitchener's scorched earth policy in full swing. But that wasn't going to stop Piet, who was sure his tone would resonate with his brother, Christian. Are you blind? he wrote in the letter. Being deceived by the Transvaal generals and burghers, I beg you to consider this before you go any further. General Christian de Wett ignored the letter, and in his book Three Years' War, he doesn't mention it at all, which is no surprise because he basically had given up his brother for dead the moment Pete began working with the hated English. There was an even more famous attempt at brokering a peace deal, this time by a man hugely respected. The venerable Martinus Pretorius had also got nowhere. He was the 81-year-old former president of both Orange Free State and Transvaal and the founder of Pretoria, the city, in 1855. It was named Pretoria after his father, Andris. It was in January that Martinus rode out at his advanced age to find General Louis Boerta in the eastern Transvaal. Boerta listened politely and then told the old man he wasn't prepared to talk to intermediaries. If Kitchener had something to say, he should say directly to Boerta in writing. And of course, Kitchener refused to say anything to Boerta directly. As I outlined in a previous podcast and in passing, other attempts at ending the war also ended badly for the Boers, who thought they'd try their hand at peace brokering. Remember how I explained that Jan Smuts had been involved in sentencing men to death by execution for trying to negotiate with the British, and how Christian de Wett had also been directly involved in executing his own people, who he said were cowards and hands-uppers. There are two stories that Martin Bossenbrook describes which I would like to tell you about. The first involved two wealthy farmers, an elderly man called Andries Vessels and his son-in-law Johannes Morgendahl. Morgendahl was the justice of the peace and a scribe for the Nieredates Gereformeerde Church, the Dutch Reformed Church. Vessels was a member of the Free State Volksraad or Parliament. These were men of high standing in Kroonstad where much fighting had raged over the past year. They rode to Christian de Wett's camp at the end of December, but were arrested on the way and then tried as traitors. A court-martial took place under General Stoffel Frunemann, who was de Wett's 2IC. Frunemann referred the matter to a higher court. While they waited, the two doomed men were dragged along with Christian de Wett's commando as prisoners, and Frunemann was tasked with making sure they didn't escape. However, on the 9th of January 1901, things went badly wrong. Early that morning, a scout rode up shouting that the British were nearby and caused some panic in Fronemann's camp. The British weren't, which makes the rest of this story even more painful in the telling. Mochendal was awake and was indignant that he was being treated so badly as a man of high standing. Fronemann turned to him and ordered the wealthy free state farmer to help inspan the oxen. Mochendal apparently ignored Fronemann, then muttered, I am not a Hottentot, which is a racial slur. The Hottentots were the general racial insult given to the Khoi, an ancient people who originally inhabited the Cape before colonialism, and also the San, and even older people who were nomads living in the region for hundreds of thousands of years. Both were generalized as Hottentots. Frunemann grabbed his shambok, which is a short and extremely dangerous whip, and laid into Morkendal. But the Free State farmer was not a weakling and managed to wrest the whip out of Frunemann's hand. General Christian de Wett had been alerted by the noise. Then he walked up, yelling to Frunemann, 
to shoot the Free State farmer, and Fruneman fired a shot, killing Mohendal instantly. The next morning, a group of 15 officers court-martialed his father-in-law, Andres Vessels, in a process chaired by De Wett. They found him guilty of treason and sentenced him to death. The only thing that saved this member of the Volksrad was President Stein himself, who commuted the death sentence. De Wett was so embittered by his brother Pete's actions in working with the Boers that he was lashing out at his own people. Well, after a year of war, it's no surprise. Another case worth noting was Mayer de Kock, who was arrested by the Boers in the Transvaal on the 23rd of January 1901. He was tried on four counts, including evasion of commando duties and surrendering arms to the enemy, conspiring with the enemy, possession of incriminating documents belonging to the peace committee that he chaired, and attempting to incite Boers to surrender. The difference here is that acting Transvaal President Skulk Berger refused to grant him clemency, and de Kock was eventually executed by firing squad in February 1901. Morgendahl and de Kock's deaths hardly registered, but there was another which took place on the 22nd of January that resonated around the British Empire. It was during the evening of the 22nd that Queen Victoria died, and an entire way of life, which had been known as the Victorian era, died with her. She was 81. Her end, many thought, had been hastened by the death of her favourite grandson. Prince Christian Victor of Schleswig-Holstein died of the effects of malaria and then typhoid while serving in Pretoria, where he was buried. Queen Victoria had been following the war very closely, as you'd expect, and in the months leading up to January 1901, had knitted eight chunky brown woolen scarves. She made them to personally honour the bravery of eight British soldiers fighting in the Boer War. Four scarves were presented to selected British servicemen after her death in 1901. The other four went to soldiers from colonial forces in South Africa, Canada, New Zealand and Australia. For months, Queen Victoria's health had been failing. She hardly ate and became extremely frail. At times, she seemed confused. By January 17th, she suffered one of what turned into several strokes. By the following day, the Queen's health was worse. She laid in bed all day, unaware of who was by her bedside. But early in the morning of January 19th, Queen Victoria seemed to rally. She asked her doctor if she were better, and he said yes. An hour later, though, she was unconscious. Dr. Reed summoned the Queen's children and grandchildren, and finally, at 6.30pm on the 22nd of January, she died, surrounded by her family at Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. Since her husband Albert's death 40 years before, she had ruled alone. She had provided very detailed instructions about how she wanted her funeral to be run, and specific items she wanted laid into the coffin with her. These included Albert's dressing gown, a plaster cast of Albert's hand, and photographs. The Boers would have looked on in wonder at the men who lifted her into her coffin on January 25th, 1901, whose son Albert, who was the new king, was joined by her grandson, William, who was actually the German Kaiser. The same Kaiser who had turned away President Kruger, who had tried to drum up support for the Boers after he left the Transvaal for exile at the end of 1900. Ironic. Once they had left, Dr. Reed had one more order to carry out. He placed a picture of her long-time associate, and some say secret lover, John Brown, the Scotsman, in her right hand, then covered the picture with flowers. She lay in state for a week, and was then buried alongside her beloved Albert in February. 
Just a passing note here, in Cape Town, South Africa, the main tourist venue has been developed under the name Victoria and Alfred Waterfront so many years later and still names catch us with their eerie relevance and resonance. Queen Victoria's 63-year reign made her the longest-serving British monarch. She had 37 great-grandchildren and their marriages to other monarchies had given her another title, the Grandmother of Europe. Back in South Africa, another woman was about to make her mark on the war. Emily Hobhouse was to become a real bane of the British army in the region. Her reports about the treatment of Boer women and children caused the English severe embarrassment, and she was hated by rank-and-file troops of the empire. It was in January 1901 that Emily Hobhouse took a train through the Karoo to Bloemfontein in the Free State in order to test reports that civilians were being mistreated by the British. Hophouse describes this journey through the semi-desert where sandstorms and thunderstorms followed one another in an endless cycle. But the sandstorms were the worst. Even with the doors and windows of the train closed, a layer of red dust built up on everything. Hophouse, though, like many before and after her, loved the pristine nature of the Karoo even through the dust-covered shawl and skirt. If you've ever been there, you'll know this about the Karoo. It has an aching, intense beauty, particularly the sky, and at times the landscape is so flat you can see the curvature of the earth in the vast distances. When the train reached the Free State border, she was in for a great shock. This was now a bleak wilderness, dotted with the bleached bones of cattle and horses, burned and abandoned farms, litter from the tens of thousands of troops who had crisscrossed the area, a land full of weeds, untended, wild. All she saw were British troops calling out for newspapers and books as they passed the outposts. In Bloemfontein, she was confronted by the daily realities of a war. Soldiers everywhere and identity checks being carried out constantly. In her hand, she carried a pass to the women's camp outside the Free State capital, granted her by the military commander with the promise that she could visit the camp whenever she wanted. On the 25th of January, the same day Queen Victoria's casket was closed up, Emily Hobhouse paid the women's camp in Bloemfontein, a visit. Bloom means flower, but there were no flowers at this camp. It lay a few kilometers outside the town itself, and Hophouse was stunned by what she saw. There was not a single bush or tree, no shade. This is midsummer in South Africa. The heat is oppressive, and yet there were the 2,000 women and children in the midst of nothing. Hophouse had the name of a contact in the camp, a Mrs. Boerter, she spent time searching and eventually found the woman who was sitting on the dirt floor inside a tent with thin cotton walls. It was sweltering inside. There was no furniture, just a chest of drawers. Sitting with her were five children and a black woman who worked as a domestic nurse. There were no mattresses, just a single blanket each. Hobhouse had read about these camps. They were sold to the British public as an ideal way to shelter Boer civilians from the conflict. Hobhouse began to collect information from the woman, and each story shocked her more than the previous. While she listened, a puff adder crawled into the tent. These are extremely dangerous snakes with venom that causes flesh to rot and slowly kills over days. There was pandemonium, and one of the women ran for help. Hobhouse attacked the puff adder with her Victorian umbrella. The snake attempted to bite her, slithering this way and that. Eventually, a man arrived with a hammer and killed the adder. She had had enough and marched off to find the camp commander, Major R.B. Cray. Hobhouse launched into loud criticisms, but he cut her short. The roles suddenly reversed, as Martin Bosenbrook writes. 
Major Cray then explained he had no resources, no money, no equipment. He was at the end of his tether. Hobhouse had managed to bring up a few carriages of food from Cape Town, but that was not enough even for this single camp. The situation, she realized, was dire. The dead were left inside the tents with their families. There was no morgue. The water from the nearby Moda River was teeming with typhoid parasites. There was no wood for fires to boil the water. There was no milk, very little soap. Worse, she realized there was sexual abuse. Many hundreds of troops surrounded the camp and the women had no protection. That night, Hobhouse penned a famous letter to her aunt, which accused the British of running camps, which were the murder of children. It was the first of many missives Emily Hobhouse was to write over the next year, and many that would be published in newspapers around the world. In a few days, General Christian de Vett would ride about 40 kilometers past this camp, drawing 700 British troops to follow him as he started his new campaign, attempting to invade the Cape. But now we must end for this episode, leaving Emily Hophouse in shock and Bloemfontein as she surveyed what became known as a concentration camp. We must also leave behind the British Empire in mourning for their queen, and in a way, mourning for an entire way of life that was to pass into memory through the 20th century. So please remember to rate this podcast on iTunes if you can, and if you have any comments, please feel free to check out our email address on the website abwarpodcast.com. You can check the contact details there. Until next week, goodbye. Oh, bring me terug naar jouw transval, daar waar mijn